0: morning everybody it's great to see you it's uh, appreciate you coming out to today also greet those who are joining us online thank i want to thank uh randy and the worship team i don't think i could have chosen a better set of songs to set the stage for our study of the scripture today We're going to be looking at John chapter 2. It's the uh, account of Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine. So if you have a Bible, you can pull that up and uh, put your eyes on it. I'd like to begin our time by reading that out loud. And if you would just follow along. It's what the scripture says. On the third day, and I'll just pause to say that phrase would make more sense if you also read John chapter 1, but it really means third day, the third day since Jesus had this encounter with Nathanael. He's outlining the first week of Jesus' public ministry. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, and his disciples put their faith in him. Some have considered Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine, as a luxury miracle asking the question, what did this miracle really accomplish? Was it truly necessary? Was it not just a miracle of convenience or luxury? It's not as if a demon-possessed person uh, was released and freed from the clutches of Satan, or a sick person freed from a debilitating illness, or a dead person brought back to life. It was water turned into wine for a wedding. What was accomplished here? Was it simply the saving the newlywed couple from the embarrassment of running out of wine is that it or is it possible that there's more going on here than at first is than is obvious at first and i believe that there is i want us to see in jesus first public miracle some significant truths about his message and his mission not just for the wedding guests, but for us as well. Now, to do that, our study is going to need to focus, center around three questions that we're going to attempt to answer. The first is, why did John include this miracle in his gospel? How does it fit in his overall purpose for writing? Our second question then is, how are we to understand this seemingly awkward conversation between Jesus and his mother? And then finally, we'll ask, How does the water-to-wine miracle point to Jesus' suffering and to our salvation? So let's start with this first question. Why did John include this miracle in his gospel? And I'll give you a couple answers. First first is this. It's not to address the propriety or impropriety of drinking wine. So let's just deal with this at at the outset. No first-century reader was wrestling with the question of whether Christians should drink wine. If you drink or enjoy a glass of wine, and if you appeal to this event from Jesus' life to support that decision, you are not incorrect. Jesus miraculously creates a lot of high-quality wine for his friends to enjoy. But you might also be missing the reason for which John includes this miracle in his gospel. There's something more important going on here. Now, I'll just tell you where I am on that question. I, I made the decision that I'm not going to drink alcoholic beverages at all, and I've got a variety of reasons for that, not the least of which is my desire to stand in solidarity, solidarity with my brothers and sisters in recovery. I've got 54 years of life of not drinking, except for a sample here and there, and I can't find a compelling reason why I should start now, but i got a handful of good reasons why I shouldn't, and I don't hesitate to commend that position to all of you. I do expect to drink eventually, one day, with Jesus in his kingdom. He said to his disciples, I will not, at the last supper, the night of his betrayal, I I will not drink the fruit of the vine again with you until that day we drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. So I think that's going to be a good time for me to, uh, to join Jesus in celebration like that. But again, this is not a question that any of John's readers in the first century were wrestling with. So here's a second reason that I think we need to consider. John doesn't include this because it was Jesus' first miracle. Now, the beginning is a very good place to start. But John's goal is not to present a chronological biography of Jesus' life. If it were, you might have expected that he would include the details of Jesus' amazing and miraculous birth, but he does not. His purpose in writing is far bigger than mere biography. It's a purpose, he's got a purpose for including this water-to-wine miracle, which incidentally none of the other gospel writers talk about. It's, if you read through the first chapter of John, you may wonder, uh, there's a, an unnamed disciple who's, who's talked about there uh, as a friend of Andrew's. And some believe that John was that unnamed disciple. Now, if that's the case, then John was clearly one of the guests at this wedding, and hence an eyewitness of Jesus doing this first miracle. And I suspect that if that's true, that over time... As John got to know Jesus and more of his message and mission, the significance of this miracle became so much more clear in John's mind that he felt compelled to include it in his gospel. Here's a third thing to think about. He didn't include this because he lacked material to write about. Clearly, John had a lot of material from which to choose as he put together his gospel. In fact, he concludes his gospel with a, uh, a statement which, which I think has an apparent touch of hyperbole. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. So clearly John had to deliberately pick and choose which events from the life of Jesus to narrate in his gospel. 21 chapters only gives you so much room. And yes, I know the chapter divisions came later. Certainly John has a purpose for every event, miracle, teaching, conversation that he has chosen to narrate for us in his gospel. Well, why then? And I think a lot of the answer lies right here. John wanted to convey truth about Jesus, Jesus' message and mission that would bring us to faith in him. So again, as you move towards the end of his gospel, John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these miraculous signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the, Son of Christ, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. In other words, everything John has chosen to narrate for us in his gospel, is chosen with very specific, salvific intent. That is, he wants them to lead us to salvation, that by believing you may have life in his name, he says. <clears throat> and John, at the end of this account of the miracle at Cana, of, uh, the wedding miracle, he, he calls this the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. And a sign, of course, is an indicator, a pointer, a specific... A, a, it's pointing in a specific direction. And that direction is that his, his disciples then would put their faith in him. This miracle is a sign, an indicator, with salvation implications for all who hear it. Now... So there's far more to this miracle than just sparing the newlyweds the, the embarrassment of this faux pas of running out of wine. And I'll mention just, you have to understand the, the culturally why, why a wedding lasts like a week in, in that culture, so it's probably pretty hard with people coming and going all the time for a week. It's hard to judge how much you're going to need. And I think understanding that helps us understand the context here a little bit more. But this brings us to our second question then. How are we to understand the seemingly awkward conversation between Jesus and his mother? And this is so very interesting, and I think it's key to understanding this miracle and its purpose. You see, you can't help but feel puzzled. Did you feel puzzled when we read it? of Jesus' conversation with his mom. First he calls her woman that doesn't feel too particularly endearing. He seems reluctant to get involved in fixing this lack of wine when he says, why do you involve me? And then he makes this seemingly mysterious reference to his time or his hour not yet having come. My time has not yet come. What's going on here? Are he and his mom even talking about the same thing? I think we'll see that in this, this, this conversation lies the key to understanding the deeper meaning of this miraculous sign. So let's think about this. <clears throat> First of all, I just think it's very interesting to trace his, to think about him how he addressed his mom here. Now, I do my daily Bible reading in the 1984 edition of the New International Version. And that's what I read from this morning. So Jesus addresses his mother with these words, Dear woman. But you know what? In the Greek text, there's no dear. It's just woman. So apparently, the NIV editors felt they needed to soften the apparent awkward sound of that designation calling his mom woman, so they added the word dear. Now, this Jesus addresses a variety of women throughout the Gospels this exact same way. It's the Greek word gunai, woman. So, for instance, in John 4, you'll, you'll see him talk to the Samaritan woman. Believe me, woman, a time is coming. Uh, there's a Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus says, Woman, you have great faith. Same name, same word, gunai. She's a, a, a crippled woman that Jesus healed, says, Woman, you are set free. There was the woman caught in adultery. John narrates that for us in chapter 8. He says, Woman, where are your accusers? Mary Magdalene, after Jesus' resurrection at the tomb, he says, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you crying? And yet, none of those instances did the NIV editors feel the need to add the word dear. But apparently, they did when he's talking to his mom. Now, interestingly, when you fast forward to the 2011 edition of the New International Version, Dear woman is changed back to just woman, but with a footnote that reads, The Greek word for woman does not denote any disrespect. Well, perhaps not, but it still doesn't feel like a very endearing way to address your mom. And I can't help but think that Jesus, in this kind of formal way of speaking to her, is possibly highlighting that he and Mary are not necessarily entirely on the same page in their thinking. Now, she's appropriately concerned about the matter at hand, but Jesus seems to have more on his mind. And that feeling of distance is also felt in Jesus' next words, why do you involve me? Now, this is an idiomatic phrase. It, it's, it literally is, what to you and to me? which doesn't really make any sense in English. But you could also translate that, what has this concern of yours to do with me? And the idea seems to be that Jesus recognizes that he and his mom are not entirely on the same page. While she's concerned about the lack of wine at a wedding, he is focused on fulfilling the bigger mission for which the Father has sent him into the world. It's as if Jesus is saying to his mother, Mom, you're thinking about saving this couple from embarrassment, which is fine and good, but I'm thinking on a deeper level of my greater mission to save the world from sin. And then finally, he answers her My time has not yet come. It's literally my hour. My hour has not yet come. What hour? What time? The hour to launch himself publicly as a miracle worker? The hour to go public? the time to show his power to the world? No. You have to see that in the Gospel of John, the discussion of Jesus' hour or Jesus' time, coming, having come, having not yet come, it's a clear reference to the events surrounding his suffering and death on the cross. That is his hour and you got to do a quick survey of John's gospel, and you'll see this. You can page through it with me, and I'll just talk, talk you real quickly through some of these references to Jesus' hour, Jesus' time, in the gospel of John. So in chapter 7, verse 30, it says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Similarly, in chapter 8, verse 20, He spoke these words while teaching at the temple near the place where the offerings were put in. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. As John John narrates the story into the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, he records these words of Christ in John chapter 12, 23 and 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So again, we're seeing that Jesus' hour centered on his suffering and death. And now that he's entered into that final week of ministry, he's able to announce that the hour has come. You see this also in chapter 12, verse 27. He says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. John 13, 1. John tells us it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come. For him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so with these words, John begins his narration of the events surrounding Jesus' suffering and death. The primary way in which he would show the full extent of his love. Finally, on the night of his betrayal and arrest, Jesus prays, John seventeen one, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so it should be clear as we surveyed John's gospel with these verses that he uses that concept of Jesus' hour or time to, revert, to refer very specifically to his passion, his suffering, his death on the cross in the place of sinners, the event upon which our salvation depends. In John's gospel, he shows how Jesus from the very beginning was moving inexorably and unstoppably toward this hour, the hour of history for which every believer is eternally grateful, the hour in which the wine of his blood would be poured out for you and for me. So now jumping back to chapter 2 in the miracle at Cana, in the first week of Jesus' public ministry, at that wedding, we're seven days into it, his focus and mindset takes him three years into the future to those events to take place in his final week of ministry, his suffering, the shedding of his blood, and his death. So how does, a, how does wine at a wedding point to the saving work of Christ and his death on the cross? Uh, Share with you a quote from uh, an author who's also the uh, publisher with Lifeway Christian Resources, Ray Clend- Clenden. And he suggested Jesus' words to Mary, and especially the comment about this hour, his passion on the cross, are almost unintelligible unless we see that he was associating the need for wine at a wedding with the need for his own sacrificial blood to be shed on the cross in order for us to receive the eternal life that he came to provide. So let's flesh that out a little bit then with our third question this morning. How does the water-to-wine miracle point to Jesus' suffering and to our salvation? Put it another way, how does the miracle in the first week of his ministry foreshadow the redemptive work the redemptive work in the final week of his ministry. Give you three things to think about, and the first is this the lack of wine as a symbol of our spiritual poverty. Now, lack of wine, that was a temporary problem to be sure, but it's a picture of a bigger problem our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy, our sinfulness and are falling short. Now here's something I find very interesting. The word John uses in chapter 2 to describe the crisis at the wedding was this. He says when the wine was gone, literally ran out or fell short. It's the very same Greek word used by the apostle Paul in Romans 3:23 to describe the universal human predicament. All have sinned and fall short. Now, there's no way to know if John, who wrote his gospel after Paul had already written Romans, there's no way to know if John was familiar with Paul's book of Romans. Um, And I don't want to read more into the text than is truly there. It's a fairly common word to run out or fall short. Uh, But it certainly seems appropriate to see in the dilemma of the wine a picture of a bigger problem that of our falling short of God's holy and righteous standard. In addition to that, the Old Testament often uses the scarcity of wine as a sign of God's disfavor, judgment, or as a consequence for the covenantal disobedience of his people. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses recites blessings that will come to God's people if they're faithful to the covenant and then he follows it up with curses that will become uh, come upon them if they are unfaithful to the to, to the covenant. He says you will and they included in this curse he says you will plant vineyards and cultivate them but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. Isaiah predicts a similar consequence for covenantal unfaithfulness. He says a 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, just a few gallons. Further in Isaiah, he fleshes this out a little bit more. Isaiah 24, he says, A curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. No longer do they drink wine with a song. Another prophet, Hosea, Chapter 2, verse 8 mourns Israel has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the new grain, the wine, and the oil. See, the wine has run out. We have all fallen short. Everyone has to come to the point, one point or another, in which we face our own spiritual poverty and see that, like the wine at the wedding, our best efforts have fallen short. The wine has run out. We do not measure up. We cannot stand before a holy and righteous God. Have you recognized your own spiritual poverty? That your wine has run out, that you stand in a desperate state before a righteous God? That's an uncomfortable but important moment. Painful though it may be, it's a moment to be embraced because the good news is Of the death and resurrection of Jesus won't mean anything until we face the bad news of our falling short, our running out, and not measuring up. The good news of John's gospel is that in the hour of Jesus' suffering and death, he would become poor for us so that we might become rich through his suffering. Paul says a similar thing in, John, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This was the hour on which Jesus was so resolutely focused, the hour in which he would, on the cross, embrace our poverty and sin, make it his own so that we could be granted the riches of. Of his righteousness. Here's the second thing to think about and the significance of this miracle the quality of wine as a symbol of Jesus' superiority. The wine Jesus made was superior, of the highest quality. Even the the steward of the manager of the banquet had to comment upon it. He said, You've saved the best for last. The wine then serves as a symbol of the eternal value and efficacy of Jesus' work and provision on the cross. Jesus' provision for us on the cross is far superior. Superior to what? To all our attempts at self improvement and self effort or anything on which we might rely to make ourselves acceptable to God. It's interesting to think about those six stone water jars that Jesus used for this miracle, they were huge. 20 to 30 gallons each, and they were described by John with these words, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. What was ceremonial washing? The Old Testament has very little to say about this. In fact, the only real mandate in the law for the use of water for ceremonial purification was for a person to bathe after they'd had a bodily discharge. That's about it, but by the time we get to the New Testament, it seems the use of water for ceremonial cleansing had become a complex ordeal of rules and regulations for the washing of hands and of washing of utensils, not really to kill germs, but for ceremonial purification. And the gigantic size of these water jars uh, attests to how big this had become. On another occasion, religious leaders criticized Jesus because his disciples dared to eat without washing their hands. It wasn't germs they were concerned with, but the strict adherence to man-made rules and regulations to make oneself acceptable to God, pure before God. It's been suggested that perhaps the empty condition of the water jars can serve to symbolize the emptiness of that way of life. So by using the stone water jars now to hold wine, it's as if Jesus is saying, let's use those stone jars for a better purpose. And symbolically, we see the stone water jars and all the man-made, ritualistic, self-effort religious system replaced by something far superior. Jesus' work on the cross is superior to all our attempts to please God on our own or to make ourselves acceptable to him. Again, every one of us must come to the place where we realize there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God or on our own to overcome our spiritual poverty by outward rituals, impossible standards, empty religious efforts, And Jesus is illustrating that there's a big difference between external cleansing of human effort and the internal transformation that only he can provide. There's nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves acceptable to God. Self-effort, sincerity, religious fervor, church attendance, ritual observation, any other human activity or endeavor. It's a dead-end approach. Here's why. It leads to one of two things, pride if you think you're succeeding, and despair when you realize you're not. You know, and in the next chapter of John's gospel, you get to chapter three, Jesus would make clear in his conversation with Nicodemus that only by a spiritual rebirth can anyone see the kingdom of God. Thomas Boston, who was a Scottish minister from the early 1700s he wrote if you are not born again all your outward reformation is nothing you have shut the door but the thief is still in the house if you're working hard to live right to follow the rules to measure up there's something you need to know Jesus wine is better Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. His sacrifice is so superior to any and all man made attempts to reach God. His death on the cross, that hour for which he was focused, on which he was focused and towards which he was moving, his death on the cross and what he would accomplish there is of eternal value. It is efficacious to cover all sins for all time, for sinners of every age in every country and culture, no matter the sin. And he is the only way to a right relationship with God and the hope of eternal life. He is superior in every way. Thirdly and finally, the provision of wine as a symbol of God's favor and blessing. You know, in the Old Testament, the abundance of wine was viewed as evidence of God's favor and blessing. Grain, new wine, and olive oil are promised to the faithful. Celebrating and the enjoyment of wine were prescribed as part of Israel's annual festival. Uh, Deuteronomy fourteen twenty six. Buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, and rejoice. Jesus' suffering and death is the ultimate expression of God's favor and blessing on you and me. Jesus marched toward this hour of suffering and death. For this hour I have come into the world. He came to die for you and for me, that we might taste God's favor and blessing now and forever. You know, John in his gospel, as you move towards the end of it, he narrates quite a bit of what happened, of the events in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He talks about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He talks about the announcement that one of them is going to betray him. He predicts Peter's denial. He gives them quite a bit of teaching in John chapter 14 through 16, But it's interesting that John doesn't include a description of that moment in which Jesus held up the glass of wine and said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. The other gospels writers give those details and surely John was present and he heard those words. And I can't help but wonder if over time as he reflected on Jesus' suffering and death and as he considered that first public miracle of water to wine, if he didn't begin to connect in his heart and his mind the wine at Jesus' first week of ministry and the wine of his blood announced at the Last Supper and shed on the cross the following day. And also about how There's no greater expression of God's love than the cross. Later, he would write in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The wine is more than just the provision of a beverage at a village wedding. It's a sign. John called it that, a miraculous sign, a foreshadowing, a taste. In Jesus' first week of ministry of the salvation, he would provide in the God-appointed hour of suffering in his final week. Jesus cares, of course, for all of the details of our lives. He's not unmoved by the predicament of the wedding. But he knows that his greater purpose is the ultimate provision of God's favor, made available through the wine of his shed blood on the cross. Well, I want to wrap up just by referring you to a verse of scripture from, from the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews includes this description of Jesus. It says, "For the joy set before him, he endured the cross." You could spend a lot of time pondering that. What is there about suffering and death and pain and shame that would be a source of joy for him? Probably a variety of things, but I believe that at least part of the answer is you and me. We are his joy. You are his joy. He died for you. And your restoration to the place of God's favor and blessing is what Jesus' death was all about. You are his joy. He loves you. And that is what the wine is all about. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in this passage we see how you are touched by the by the needs of the people you love, on the temporal needs as well as their eternal needs. And we pause right now to thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us so that we could be re- reunited to our Heavenly Father and he to us. That everything that was forfeited and at the fall would be undone and overturned through the power of your death on the cross for us. And we worship you and thank you with all of our hearts and in all sincerity for what you've done for us. I pray for each person here and listening today that we would be touched in a new way with the immensity of your love for us. And in return, we give our love to you and our worship, and we make this prayer in your name. Amen.